Paul uh, composes this letter that we call the book of Colossians. It was, a, it was a pastoral letter from the Apostle Paul. And so he wrote this letter, and thus it begins, Paul an Apostle, because it had the weight of Paul in his apostolic authority. He's writing to set things in order and to make some corrections there uh, on behalf of the church. Paul, as far as we know in history, um, he never went to Colossae. He never visited there. But we have this letter uh, preserved for us uh, that has been given to us. So just to kind of bring us up, we're looking uh, last week we uh, roughly stopped around verse 12, and we're going to pick it up at verse 13, even though we covered a little bit of verse 13. And what uh, we looked at last week is as Paul is, uh, again, he, he's never, he never met these people. He did not know them personally. But notice what it says in verse 9 of your, of your Bibles. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, heard what? He uh, previous verses heard about their growing faith and uh, their and and their uh, hope that they have in the gospel and how there's much fruit that is being born through these believers in Colossae. How did he hear all that? He heard it through Epaphras was get, telling him what was happening there in the church. And it says that since the day we heard this, we have not stopped praying for you. So remember last week we looked at those different. Uh, there's about seven different things that we looked at there in verses 9 through uh, 13, of different things that Paul the Apostle prayed for believers that he had never met. And uh, we looked at those in some detail, and, and we're recording these on Wednesday. And also there's an outline attached, so if you go to the website... Uh, where we uh, post our, our sermons and teachings, you'll see the Colossians series there. And when you click on that, you'll see a PDF. Everybody know what a PDF is? A copy of last week's outline. It's a little hard to keep copies of last week's and weeks before back there, but if you want a copy to follow along, you'll see one attached, and you can pull it up and follow it along. So then we came to verse 13 as kind of as Paul is wrapping up this prayer that he is praying uh, that, you know, he talks about that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, verse 9, and uh, verse 10, they would walk worthy, fully pleasing him, verse 11, being strengthened with all power and glorious might, that they would have a great endurance in the faith. And, and then he says, verse 13, and we just touched on this when we ended last week, he said, he, Christ, has rescued us from the domain of darkness, and that word uh, and I'm, I have the ESV printed out. Uh, you'll have to use your Bible. I can't print all the verses out, so you need to bring your Bibles. But verse 13, I'm reading from the uh, uh, Christian Standard Bible. Uh, just do something a little different. But the ESV is what we'll have usually in the, uh, the outline. But he talks about this verse, verse 13, where it says, uh, of what Christ has done, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We talked about that word transferred, that that was a word that uh, in the, uh, uh, the Greek uh, speaks of when a people are conquered and they are deported from one you know, a nation, armies come in and, and taken over this land or this nation or whatever, and they've conquered this army, and they've taken this group of people. I gave the illustration of like when the Allies uh, came into Germany and Poland during World War II, and they found those 
prisoners, those Jewish prisoners in Auschwitz and Birkenau, Birken, Birkenau, Birkenau um, and the different concentration camps, and they, uh, uh, they were transferred from one domain to another. That's the, the word that is used there. So Christ has, has uh, transferred us, has deported us, we could say, from one domain of darkness into a domain of light. That's what Christ has done. We have been moved from one, uh, uh, as a conquering king, we've been moved from one domain to the next, and so we are now under the rulership of the kingdom of God. In verse 14, Paul wraps this section up and says, in him, in Christ. And one of the things that's so central about Colossians that we'll really see as we kind of get into it a little bit more tonight is we're going to see, and Colossians is noted for its very high uh, view and language of the person of Christ. I said earlier that there was, uh, there was issues and false teachers that were coming in and, and bringing some confusion, bringing some false teaching into the church. And what Paul begins by doing is exalting Christ, is exalting the name of Christ, is exalting of who Jesus is. And that'll, uh, we'll, we'll just get a little bit of that tonight, and certainly in the weeks to come, we'll get more into that. But that'll make sense when you realize what some of these false teachers were teaching of why Paul used some of the language he did to talk about Christ in the way he did, okay? And so he says, again, past tense, we have forgiveness or we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what, uh, again, part of Paul's introduction there and what, um, what he gives thanks and he prays for. Um, in talking about some of these issues that were going on, and, and as the weeks go on, we'll, we'll delve into these a little bit more uh, in detail, obviously, as we go through the verses and chapter, but just by way of kind of highlighting uh, a few of these, and they're not in your handout, uh, but the, one of the first issues of the false teaching that uh, we surmised from Colossians that was going on is uh, that they had an inferior view. I'm talking about these false teachers, not Epaphras and the church. We're talking about these false teachers that were coming in. Because when we get into chapter 2, he deals with some very specific things that give us an indication that these were some issues. These were some problems that he's correcting, that he's saying that this is not the way. Here's the correct view of understanding Christ. But they had a, a very, uh, they had an inferior view of Christ, and we know a little bit from church, uh, you know, commentaries and backgrounds that uh, you may have heard of a false uh, teaching that was very prominent in the uh, first century and the second century. It was called Gnosticism. We don't really think that's what's going on here because really Gnosticism came in later, but we certainly see a lot of the root systems of some of the false teachings. So don't, don't worry about Gnosticism and that, what's going on there. But one of the characteristics that they had in common that we see later with this, this Gnostic cultish teaching that went on, and the reason he, he begins with this very high, exalted view of who Christ is, is because these false teachers, to kind of put it in just real... Uh, simple, plain language, is they were not denying who Jesus was, but they were teaching that Jesus was one of many steps in order to attain kind of this super spirituality, to kind of, if you really want to get into the deeper things of God, Christ is certainly one of those steps, but there certainly is 
uh, things beyond Jesus. And so they had a very distorted view of who Jesus is. And that'll make sense as we kind of look at some of these verses and see why Paul belabors the fact of using language that's very exalting and very high view of the person of Christ, all right? So that's one of the things that uh, they had an inferior view of Christ. Uh, When we come over to chapter 2, verse 8, again, I'm just kind of throwing these out here in the beginning because I think as we walk through this, knowing kind of where we're uh, some of the problems that, that some of these things will make a little more sense. Uh, Paul warned in chapter 2, verse 8, he said, Beware or be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. Another th- way that these false teachers were coming in is they, uh, and we're not really exactly sure what these these philosophies were, but we do know that they were not consistent with the gospel because Paul wouldn't have warned them to, to uh, stay away from that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. Now, remember, Colossae is in, is in a, what we would call Gentile territory. It's, even though there's a, there's a strong Jewish population there, but it's essentially Gentile. Its culture is Greek. It's under a Roman, uh, uh, everything's under the Roman control, basically. But it's, in, but it's a Greek uh, culture and philosophy. And if you know anything about the Greeks, you know that philosophy, they basically invented philosophy, as we refer to philosophy and, and understanding the origins of knowledge in the world and, and whatever, not necessarily based upon anything biblical or Christian, but uh, there seems to be, again, this wasn't just this one track of false teaching. It was kind of like what we see in our culture today. It's kind of a mishmash. You ever talk to people and they have a little bit of this and they watch a little bit of that and they read a little bit of this and they listen to that guy on TV and it's just kind of a mishmash. They got a real confused view of, of, of the Bible, of God, and you, they, you know they're not just... They're not just down one row, but they just kind of got this, I call it lint brush theology. They just kind of gone through life and just picked up a bunch of, bunch of stuff, a bunch of teachings and things, and they're kind of inconsistent, but that doesn't seem to bother them. So we kind of find uh, that Paul's warning against these philosophies, and, and we're not really, again, we're not exactly sure, but obviously being Greek, uh, that there was a mixture of that. And then we come to also in chapter 2, verse 8, and all through chapter 2, uh, into uh, chapter 3 a little bit, is that, that part of this mishmash was they were also being drawn away by some kind of legalistic observance of Jewish traditions. Now, remember, there was a large Jewish uh, group there uh, that had gone back to being deported, and one of the Roman uh, um, you know, leaders that had conquered in Israel, they were deported back for cheap labor. So it was a large Jewish population, even though they're in Gentile territory. So it would seem natural that you had this mixture of some Jewish teaching. And so uh, there was this confusion, whether you know, it was uh, uh, this not really understanding of the person of Christ and a little mixture of some Greek philosophy. And then you add uh, keeping some Jewish dietary laws and festival laws, again, as a way of, of that Christ is not sufficient. Christ is not complete. So we need to add some of these things. These are some things that, you know, if you do these things, there's some ways that you can get more spiritual. Has anything changed? Not really. That's still out there. That still is something we have to be warned against. So we have that mixture. Then you also look 
at uh, also in, uh, was it verse 18 of chapter 2, if that wasn't bad enough, look at this, let no one condemn you by delighting, uh, and again, the, the uh, keeping of um, asceticism, which is kind of a self-denial, but also in verse 18 that we see another thing that was being introduced there is the worship of angels. My goodness, this is this is like Sunday morning cable television, isn't it? I mean, you've just got a mishmash of all sorts of stuff. Now they're, now they're one of the issues is there's this angelic worship. And part of this, uh, the roots of some of this false teaching that later became identified as Gnosticism, spelled G-N-O, uh, G-N-O-S-I-S from the Greek word knowledge, was that they saw Jesus as a good start but that they taught this idea that there was many emanations or there was many steps in this spiritual ladder, and, and Jesus was just kind of one of the lower steps, but we, were, we would want to get beyond Jesus in order to work our way up to this super knowledge, this super uh, understanding of who God was. That was kind of the cultic false teaching there. And angelic worship was a part of this mishmash of false teaching that is going on there in Colossae. And then we um, see also in verse 18 and 19 is you had these individuals that he mentions at the, at the end of verse 18 that it says uh, they're worshiping of angels claiming access to a visionary realm. They were claiming special revelation and special knowledge. Such people are inflated with empty notions of their unspiritual mind. So then you had people that were claiming to have special knowledge, special insights of God. Is that still going on today? Of course it is, right? And there's some real confusion of that. So that gives you a little idea of some of the things that the Apostle Paul, when we come up back over to chapter 1, that the Apostle Paul is having to kind of deal with a little bit. So let's pick it up in verse 15. And it says, and I'm reading from the uh, CSB, that he is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Uh, ESV says essentially the same thing. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. If you want to know what God is like, Paul is saying, look to Jesus. If you want to know what God's like, look to Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Uh, do you remember Jesus? Uh, we, I think we maybe mentioned this last week. Go and turn to it. And the reference, um, uh, I have it later, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait and skip it for later. Look over in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, this idea of what is God like? He is the image of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, find Hebrews. If you just kind of go left a few blocks past the, the uh, Second Timothy and Titus, you'll hit and land on Hebrews. Uh, the book of Hebrews. And we'll find something here in Hebrews chapter 1, and maybe I could get somebody to read verses 1, 2, and 3 of Hebrews with this idea of what Paul says in verse 15, that Jesus is the image, literally uh, the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We're going to talk about firstborn in a minute. But I want you to see another way that it's... Uh, uh, that uh, the image of God is talked about. Someone read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Notice it says, back in verse 3, 
The sun is the, in your version may be a little different, but it, you, your version said the exact imprint. Is that right? Verse 3, Michael, back there. All right. Uh, it may say, mine says the exact expression. The word there in the Greek is the word icon, okay, meaning character, that Jesus, and the, the idea is, you ever seen, uh, you know, back, you watch some of the old movies where when the king was writing a letter or signing a document, they'd put some wax there, and he'd have his ring, and he would make an imprint of the, his icon onto that wax, so if anybody opened it or whatever, or they would know it came from the king. That's kind of the picture that the writer of Hebrews, that Jesus is the exact duplicate of the exact image, the exactness, the exact character, uh, impression, copy of the nature of God. Uh, He told Philip, remember Philip uh, said, uh, Jesus, uh, if you would just show us the Father, we won't ever ask you anything again. Remember he said that? And remember what Jesus said, have I not been with you? That if you've seen me, you've seen what? The Father. Now, he wasn't saying, as the Son, he's not saying, I am the Father, but he's saying that I am God. That's really what he was saying. He's not saying the Father is the Son and the Son is the Father. That's a misunderstanding of the Trinity. But he's saying, you've seen me, you've seen God. In other words, that, that have I not been with you that you don't, you don't understand yet of who I am? Uh, the Pharisees seemed to understand because there were times when Jesus made claims about deity, and they quickly understood because they were ready to kill him, of him equating himself equal with God. And so that's, that's what Paul is wanting to convey here. And, and the reason, again, I talked about those false teachings is because if you have that in mind, he is certainly coming at it in a, in a different way. He's saying that Jesus isn't just some rung up the ladder. Jesus isn't just a first step to a higher spirituality. You want to know God, you better know Jesus. There is no before and after. You better know Jesus, okay? There's no, there's no uh, multiple layers of spirits. There's no multiple layers of angelic beings that Jesus is the icon of God. He is the image of God. Of God, and then there's this other phrase that I think is important to unpack. And he says this in verse 15: Not only is the image is Jesus the image of the invisible God, but he's also what? What does it say? The firstborn of God. The firstborn. Um, let me show you something. I want you to. Uh, I want you just to read it. It's going to be on the screen. I want you just to read it. And then I'm going to ask you if um, you agree with this statement or you don't agree with it. Uh, And uh, let me get it over here. Hopefully it'll show there. All right. I'll read it in case it's a little hard for you to read. It says, God created Jesus before creating Adam. In fact, God created Jesus and then used him to make everything else, including the angels. That is why the Bible calls Jesus, quote, the firstborn of all creation by God. And the reference there is Colossians 1, 15 and 16. Uh, how, many, how many of you would agree that that's a fairly sound statement? You don't have any issues with that. You know I'm tricking you, right? You know I'm setting you up, you, you know. Well, I'm glad you did. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, well, if you did agree with that, you would, you're late to your uh, Kingdom Hall meeting because that's a statement uh, from a Jehovah's Witness uh, on their view of definition of 
Jesus as the firstborn, okay? Now, the reason I pointed that out is because the, this, uh, if you were to talk to uh, either Jehovah's Witness uh, primarily, they will use that in order to defend and say, see, Jesus was created, okay? He did not always exist. He was created because it says, what? Firstborn. Pretty, you know, they just say, you know, slam dunk, uh, end of argument. Well, unfortunately or fortunately, that is not the way the Bible uses that term. In the, uh, again, just to, to quote the Greek, because, you know, the New Testament's written in Greek, protokos means literally existing first in priority. It has nothing to do with being created. It speaks about being first in priority. When we talk about Melania Trump as the what? Was she the first lady who has ever been created? No, it is the first lady. It's a title of what? Honor, priority. You with me? All right? So, so again, we have that in our language. So when it talks about Jesus as the firstborn, it is not teaching a false teaching like Jehovah's Witnesses would teach or, or some other uh, group that would not see or teach the deity of Christ but it means to give a place of honor. Now, in your notes, I think I have some of this there. I have that word protokos, protokos, which means priority or honor. But I have this also, this little paragraph. In the Old Testament, we read about Joseph having two sons, Ephraim, Ephraim or, and Manasseh. He had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh was the one who was born first. But when Jacob, near his death, uh, jo- Joseph brought him these two sons, and Joseph was going to bless them. Uh, he, uh, he placed his right hand, Jacob did, he placed his right hand on Ephraim, the right hand being the, uh, the place or the right hand of authority or, or honor. He, instead of placing his right hand on Manasseh, the firstborn, he placed his right hand on Ephraim, the secondborn, and gave him the greater blessing. And so when we come to uh, Jeremiah 31, 9, we see that uh, the Scripture says, God said, I am the father to Israel, Jacob, and Ephraim, the secondborn, is my what? Firstborn. So the point is, it's firstborn is a title of honor and has nothing to do with chronological birth or being created. You with me? Does that make sense? All right, so that's important because that's always a, a spoof text, or I should say proof text. It's more of a is that uh, somebody a Jehovah's Witness or somebody again that wants to demonstrate that Jesus is created, that he is not preexistent. And there's other places we see that even Jacob himself. In uh, uh, again, don't worry about these references. You can look them up. That in Exodus four twenty two, Jacob himself was called God's firstborn. Well, we know Jacob wasn't. Uh, God, he wasn't chronologically um, born first, but it was a place of honor, or Israel, as his name is called, uh, is called God's firstborn. David, interesting, in, in Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven, he was uh, the eighth son of Jesse, and in Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven, he's called the firstborn. It's a p- title of honor. Uh, Jesus, in Colossians 1, 15, and also in Revelation 1, 5, is as we see it here, that is called the firstborn over all creation. So I think that's important to point out so that there's not confusion there 
or misunderstanding as far as what and how that term is used versus somebody you may be talking to that is a Jehovah's Witness or even somebody that wants to deny the deity of Christ and says right there, see, Jesus was himself created or born. Any questions on that? And I went through that a little fast, but any questions on that? Does that make, is that helpful? Okay, thank you for both of you that nod your head. I appreciate that. All right, so, so know what that means, that, it, that protokos, the Greek, but even if you don't remember the Greek, it means first in priority. It has nothing to do with being that he was the first created. Okay, all right, very important there. Then, In fact, if you go to the next verse, this is where a lot of times Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture. Have you ever realized that? So if somebody wants to say that Jesus himself is created, so look at verse 16. What does verse 16 say? For everything, remember this is very exalted language of Christ. He's writing this uh, to this church. It's being uh, seduced by this idea that Jesus is just one of maybe many spiritual entities or beings. But what does he say in verse 16? For everything was created by him. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Look at these levels here. And the reason that's kind of important to point out, because one of these, one of these uh, you know, false teachings was this idea of, of many layers of beings, maybe the worship of angels. And Jesus saying, Jesus, again, he's not one of many. He is overall. He is not only the firstborn, the place of ultimate honor, but it says by him, verse 16, all things were created. Now look at these four levels in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus, um, to just again reiterate that idea that he himself was created, uh, verse 16 makes it very clear that not only was he not created, but he was himself, what? Creator. You with me? He is creator. And part of that verse 16, those various, uh, some think, uh, I know the, the, um, the uh, uh, CSB, the Christian Standard uh, Bible, Study Bible, the, I'm using the Christian Standard uh, version here. Uh, you know, they have a note there that suggests maybe this is referring to the four classes of angelic beings, you know, these different heaven and earth, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, not really sure. But it's also, again, a correction that we're not to worship angels, as Paul said in chapter 2, verse 18, that this false teaching was advocating a worship of angels, okay? In fact, you remember when, was it Paul and... Uh, was it Silas? I'm trying to remember where they were at there in Acts. And uh, remember, they uh, had they they um, uh, uh, there was a miracle, and uh, the folks wanted to th thought they were Zeus and another Greek god. And you remember their reaction? No, no, no. Well, you know we're your mere men. Don't worship us. The idea of worshiping anyone or anything other than Yahweh, God, is, is all through Scripture. We're not to worship angels. We're not to worship any created thing. We're not to worship any image of a created thing or any image of God. 
And so this idea of that Jesus is just maybe a higher level of angel. In fact, over in Hebrews, if you uh, uh, turn back over to Hebrews, uh, one of the first things that the writer of Hebrews does is showing the superiority of Christ. And the first thing that he deals with right at the very beginning of the book of Hebrews in chapter 4 is that Jesus is superior to the angels. Hebrews 1.4 says, So he, Christ, became superior to the angels just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. And for the first uh, 14 verses after that, he's talking about how Jesus is superior to angels. And so this idea that 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 uh, you know that that Jesus is just kind of a a first rung um, entity, and to get more spirituality is pretty clear. And how Paul says that he, that everything was created by him in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things. And again, look at this last part: all things have been created through him. Okay, he's the agent of creation, and all things are created for him. Think about that. All things are created for Christ. My life, I've been made for Christ. I've been made to glorify Christ. Everything, there is, there is, no, there is no, nothing that has not been made by God that is not to serve Christ, that is not to glorify Christ, that is not to exalt Christ. Even creation, sometimes in in, in our Christianity, we kind of have a skewed view that anything related to the creation, that's kind of unspiritual. You know, we're, we're dealing with spiritual things. We say, well, you know, we're all going to get rapture. It's all going to blow up and burn, so who cares? You know, just kind of pillage the earth for everything, and it'll, it'll, all, it'll all go its way. Well, the Bible says in Romans 8 that even creation itself yearns for the coming of Christ. It has, there's something about creation. God made the heavens and the earth. He made everything, and he said it was what? It was okay. No, he said what? It was, it was good. It was there for him. It was there to glorify him. And so here we see that all things have been created through Christ, and everything is for Christ. I was thinking of Philippians. If you want to take a... Uh, uh, well, take a right and go to Philippians. No, I'm sorry, left, left, left. I was just teasing you. Go left. Go left, young man. Uh, no, that was west. Uh, I know. Uh, but look at Philippians 2.13, this idea that, that we exist for him, that we exist for Christ. This is that wonderful chapter where uh, Jesus is talking about uh, the uh, servant of Christ who... Uh, came and and uh, and came to earth, humbled himself, becoming obedient. Verse eight, and in verse thirteen of chapter two, let me just pick it up in verse twelve, Philippians two, and I'm just going to pick it up in verse twelve. But verse thirteen, therefore, my dear friends, Paul says another. He's written this along the same time he wrote Colossians. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you always have obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, work it out. Okay, this is, this is you know, you need, to, you need to do this, right? But then in the very next breath, he says, verse 13, it's not working out in your own strength and power because he says in verse 13, for it is who working in you? 
It is God working in you both to will, and this is what I want to zero in on, to will and to work according to what? His good pleasure. We are made for Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. You know, we've been saved by grace through faith, and that's not of yourselves, as anyone should boast or brag. We know that, right? Then it says in verse 10, for we are his, notice the language, we are his workmanship. Literally, the the word there in the Greek for workmanship could also be the word for masterpiece. We are his masterpiece. We are his workmanship. We are his special project, all right? Uh, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he had planned before. But but don't miss that we exist for his pleasure. We are his workmanship. Philippians 1.6 says, the good work that he began in you, he will finish it, okay? So all things are created for, through him, and all things are created, what? For him. I don't have any, if I want to say, if I want to talk about being under the lordship of Jesus, there's no, there's no area that is in my life that exists is not meant to be used and lived for the glory of God. And I think sometimes when we fall into this and other people talk about a lack of fulfillment or satisfaction in life or uh, that if my life, if my body, if my mind, um, if, if everything of who I am has been designed and created by Christ for Christ, for him, to glorify him, then I need that as I live for him, I find that joy and I find that satisfaction. If I'm going to take my car, my, you know, what is it, 2012 Altima, I'm going to take that car and I'm going to drive it off the Courtney Campbell Bridge because I just want to drive across that water and take a shortcut to St. Pete. You know, I just want to drive. What's going to happen? I'm going to crash. I'm going to sink. It's going to be a disaster. Well, you know what? When I use that vehicle, here's the thing. That vehicle is not designed, it is not made to be used for that purpose, is it? No, no, they got specialty cars. But that, I can guarantee you, that Altima is not designed for that purpose, all right? I, I don't have to drive off to prove that. I know that. My life is designed to glorify God. My life is designed to live morally, purely, to live in a way that is to honor Jesus because I have been created by him and for him. Don't, don't, don't miss that. You know the quote I love by St. Augustine, that our hearts are restless till we find rest in thee. I'm not made to live for myself. I'm made to glorify Jesus. And so all things are made for him. And look at this verse 17. Great, great, great. Again, he's just, he's just layering on these exaltations of Christ. He's just, he's, just, he's just coming at this falsehood that Jesus is just some kind of low-level, uh, created spiritual being that once you get past him, you can really get into the deep stuff of knowing uh, the spiritual world and the spiritual life. He's just layering, layering it on that Christ is the creator. And verse 17, look at this. Uh, What is verse 17? It says, And he, Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things 
hold together. That means that Jesus Christ is the unifier of all creation. He is the unifying principle. He is the sustainer of the universe. I was thinking about that, and I was, uh, I was not... Uh, uh, now, I took science in school just to avoid math. Because, you know, that you could... You remember, it said, well, if you take a science, arts, or something like that, not physics, not that kind of stuff, because, I mean, you know, I wanted to, you know, just avoid math. That was my goal. And, uh, but sometimes they could, you could take a science class, and dodos like me could avoid any math, right? And that's why we are dumb with math today. But uh, so, so uh, you know, and again, science had its own challenges, especially when they snuck in math. Like, hey, wait a minute, physics, how does that get in here? I thought I was avoiding that. But, uh, but there is this law of science. I was thinking about this idea of holds all things together. Now, the component of, of, our, of our universe is the atom, right? The, you know, I mean, as far as the basic, I know there's uh, other smaller uh, elements, but let's just talk about the atom for a second. And I know I have some science minds here, so uh, you, uh, you, if I get it, if I totally destroy it, uh, you can help me out here. But there's a law of science I was reading about called, or it's known as Coulomb's law of electricity that says that like charges repel. Now you know this from two magnets, or you ever? I remember these uh, these two little magnets. They were like a few little dogs or something, and you could put them together and they'd kiss, you know, because the magnets would come together or whatever. But if you, had the, uh, uh, if you had two positives, what would happen? You'd find, it's like there was something there, wasn't it? I remember as a little kid having those two magnets, and it was like something invisible that I couldn't see, but I couldn't put them together. Those were two positives. You couldn't do that, but if you had a if they were opposites, talking about opposites attract, if you had a positive and negative, then they would, they would go together, right? Well, Coulomb's law of electricity says that like charges repel, and those magnets are a good example. Now, here's what I, I, was, I was looking at, and I thought this was, again, thinking about this idea that Jesus holds all things together. Here, here's, here's a mystery. If opposite charges attract, and like charges repel, kind of like those little magnets, those little, those two little, you know, Scotty dogs that I remember having those magnets. Here's a mystery. In the nucleus of an atom, there are protons that are packed together, and these protons are all positive charge particles. Now, I know you have neutrons, and they're neutral, and you have these, these positive charge po- particles um, that are packed in this atom, and what is it? The, it's the, is it the, the neutrons and the protons? Neutrons are, are kind of neutral. They don't, you know, I'm not saying they don't do anything, but, but the protons, they are, they are positive charge. And then you have, what is it, the electrons out there kind of floating around in, in the, they're not floating around, but, but they're, they're uh, not, po- they're negative, right? But in this atom, you have all this, these protons that are positive all packed in. Now, what did we just say about this law? That positive repel. It is the opposites that hold together. You with me? It's the like that are supposed to repel, 
But in, the, in this atom, you have all this positive charged protons. And what are they doing? They're not repelling each other. They're packed in there. Now, I know scientists have, you know, just in reading, there's some different theories. They have this, you know, about this atomic force. Sometimes it's even talk about this atomic glue. And, but really, they don't really know why these positive protons in the atom aren't repelling each other. What is causing them to stay together? Because you know what would happen if they all suddenly right now if all of a sudden all the atoms began to repel each other, we would be non-existent. We would come apart. And that's not even the, we would just, we would just, I don't want to say destruct, we would not even, can't even imagine what that would look like. What holds them together? What does verse 17 say? It says that Christ holds everything together. I found that pretty interesting. Not only does he hold literally everything physically together, and I think that if you, uh, is, it, um, is it nuclear fission, fission, F-I-S, is it F-I-S-S-I-O-N or I-O-N, not fusion, but fission, where if they want to split that atom, they 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 attack it with a with a neutron. Is that or yeah, a neutron? I'm looking at some of you that are science people, minds. But they, they isn't that what? And again, I'm being very lay person here. But isn't that by 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 uh, the in the as far as in the lab, so to speak, by uh, attacking it or or importing a neutron into that atom? to cause it to split. Am I, is that kind of a rough way, ignorant way of, all right, you're, the, you're it. You're the science man. Um, and that kind of, is that, okay, is that fairly roughly? All right. And that energy that is derived from that split, in, in, I know there's a much more elaborate means to it, but that essentially is what we get nuclear atomic energy by that fission that is caused by the splitting of that atom by attacking it with a neutron to break up those positive protons. And that's what causes, or I know many other steps, to a nuclear atomic reaction. Is that roughly okay? All right. What holds it all together? What holds it all together? Now, interesting, if you look up 2 Peter 3.10, it talks about, do I have the scripture there? I don't know if I typed it out there. Do I have it there? Look at 2 Peter 3.10. It's on number 5 of your outline. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The Bible indicates that way before the any concept of atomic fission or any of these things, that there is a day of the Lord in which everything is going to be burned up and dissolved. But Jesus holds all things together physically, 
But here, switch gears. Not only does he hold all things in the universe and sustains all things, but who is it that holds my life together? Who, who is it that keeps me from coming undone, torn apart? Christ. There's times in which had Jesus not kept me from discombobulating by emotions or issues, what keeps me together is Christ. Verse 18, and he's the head of the body, the church, the beginning. There's that firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the sovereign source. Head is like the source of a, of a river. Everything flows through Christ. He is the source of life to all things. And that firstborn from the dead, you may say, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, there's been other people uh, that have been uh, risen from the dead. Lazarus, uh, the widow's son, Elisha. But they died. They eventually died. Jesus, being the for- firstborn from the dead, was resur- resurrected from the dead. He never d- tasted death he, again. He never died again. Lazarus, they eventually had a funeral for Laz. All right? They had a funeral for him. And, and whoever the widow's son was, uh, that Elisha had this miracle, eventually he died again. And he never came back. But Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, meaning like us that we will be, that his resurrection we see a future resurrection. Verse 19, Paul's just layering this on. Got a couple of verses, and we'll wrap this section up. Notice this. Very Again, if somebody were to say uh, that Jesus Christ, the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus Christ is God, a very God, that he is not. There's, we sometimes talk about the deity of Christ. We, we've not even gotten into 20 verses and seen several examples here that show that to be patently false. Not just that of what Paul's saying there. Look at verse 19. For God, verse 19, I'll read it from your hand out there so it's not confused. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I'll read it from another version. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Similar. Look over to chapter, is it chapter... Um, uh, look at chapter 2, verse 9, Colossians. Just kind of look over there to the, to the right a little bit. Someone read verse 9, Colossians 2, verse 9. We'll see that Paul kind of brings this home again of this uh, God, a very God. Someone read verse 9 of chapter 2. Out loud. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Yeah. For the full, my version says, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. John 8, 58. I don't think I know if I wrote some of these. Some of them I don't. Uh, John 8, 58. Yeah, it's in your, it's in your hand out there. Remember uh, when he was talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and he said, uh, truly, truly, I said to you, before Abraham was, I am. Some people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. But what is he saying there? Before Abraham was, and that I am statement was a name directly related to who? God, Yahweh. Because the reaction of the Pharisees, I don't have it there, the very next verse, they, they got what he was saying because you know what? They, they, here's a Greek word. They freaked out. They went crazy 
because of the blaspheme that he, in essence, they understood that he was saying that he was God. Of course, Jesus claimed to be God, and some of the Pharisees understood it more than some people. And John, Thomas, John 20, 28, after the resurrection, Thomas, doubting Thomas, we like to call him, he says, I'm not going to believe it until I touch his side, his hands, and Jesus allowed him to do that. And what was his response? My Lord and my God. Now, you've heard me say this before. Jesus did not rebuke him. If like the Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is just a created servant of Jehovah, then he received worship that's only uniquely allowed to Jehovah. Jesus received that by receiving Thomas's response, my Lord and my God. And you heard me say that one time, Tondo, Jehovah's Witness, they said, well, it doesn't mean that. It just means, oh, my God. Right. Um, so how do I get to know God? How do I get to know God? If Jesus, if God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and I want to know God, what's the path to know God? Christ. All the fullness of Christ, all the fullness of God is in Christ.